0: Well, good morning. This last week, because of the quarantine, Disney blessed all of us with young children by releasing Frozen 2 early to their streaming service, Disney+. Plus. My family and I watched it this week, and for me, it was my very first time to see the movie. I was struck as I watched it by the ridiculous song that Olaf, the comedic relief of the movie, sings. The song is called When I'm Older. The song he sings says this This will all make sense when I am older. Someday I will see that this makes sense. One day, when I'm old and wise, I'll think back and realize that these were all completely normal events. I'll have all the answers when I'm older, like why we're in this dark, enchanted wood. I know in a couple years these will seem like childish fears, and so I know this isn't bad, it's actually good. All right. Well, this song, despite being silly, I think perfectly captures our desire to understand the hard things that are going on around the world. We want the worldwide pandemic of COVID nineteen to make some sense, so that we can do something about it. We want we want to, to to understand it, so that we can contain it or we can control it in some way. Or if we can't contain and control it, we at least want to know that maybe one day we might understand it. Have you thought this past week, I can't wait until I get to heaven or until Jesus returns so that I can ask him what he was doing in the midst of this pandemic? And if you're resonating with me, if you're resonating with this desire, let me ask, is one of the reasons that you're hurting right now because your life has been upended Because you've lost a sense of control or at at least the illusion of control in your own life. And the Bible would tell you that perhaps this disruption in some way is God's grace to us. It is his grace to remind us that we aren't in control. That trying to live independently is not right or good. But that he is in control. And although we do have some influence, although we have some power and some ability to create outcomes, we often think more highly of our ability to control our own worlds. But in moments like the one we're in today, when the illusion of control is peeled back, how do you respond? Do you respond with a clenched fist in a desire to regain that control, to protect yourself, Does that scarcity trigger kick in and send you into a fight or flight mentality? Or do you respond with an open heart to trust in the Lord and to utilize the bits of influence and power that you have to the betterment of others, right, in a form of generosity? And in a weird way, that is what our passage is about this morning. We're going to be looking at selfishness and blessing in the form of the people of this story. We're going to be looking at the egotistical, self-interested, and lascivious character, King Herod. Then we're going to be looking at the self-sacrificing and blessed character of Jesus, the true King. And then finally, we'll be looking at the faithful witness of John the Baptist, the character whose life and death proclaims God's kingdom. But by way of introduction, and before I read our text this morning for us, let me orient us to where we've been in our study in the Gospel of Mark. We've we've seen from chapter 1 through chapter 6, Jesus' ministry to the whole area of Galilee. And as as God made flesh, he has inaugurated God's kingdom come. He's called his disciples. He's healed the paralytic He's begun preaching about the kingdom of God in mysterious and amazing ways. He's calmed the storm. He's raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he's healed a hemorrhaging woman. And we've seen him even rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. Now we see in this new section of the Gospel of Mark here, beginning in chapter 6, Jesus is beginning to utilize his disciples within his ministry. He's sent them out earlier in the chapter uh, of Mark 6 to proclaim the kingdom of God. And it's now into this context that we get this seemingly out-of-nowhere story about Herod and John the Baptist. And, And it's told after the fact rather than in real time. That's the context of our scripture passage this morning from Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. If you have your Bibles with me at home, please turn there and we'll read together. Well, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah and others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death But she couldn't, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths, And his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer as we consider God's word together. Our God and Father, we pray that as we learn more about you together this morning, scattered in our homes, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hands and feet to do your will. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit, amen. Well, we're first going to begin looking at this passage by looking at the selfish character Herod. Well, Jesus was born into and lived in a world of self-interested kingdoms and rulers. Right? He was born during the reign of Herod the Great, not to be confused with the Herod of our passage here, which was Herod Antipas, right, Herod the Great's son. One of the fascinating things about this passage is how it refers to Herod. It calls Herod King Herod. Herod was very much not a king. He was a tetrarch. Of Galilee and Perea. In other words, he was one of four governors, not even four governors of the empire, but four governors of the country. So he is very much not a king. That said, Herod loved calling himself a king. It was that desire that eventually got him in trouble with the Romans because calling himself a king is ultimately what got him exiled by the infamous emperor Caligula in the year 39 AD within 10 years or so of the passage we just read. But not only was Herod a fake king in the traditional sense, he was also a fake king in the biblical sense. He relished the power that it brought him, not, not, not the glory that it brought God or the blessing that it brought others. No, he was selfish in it. And we see, we see that in the way, first, that, that Herod disobeyed the Jewish laws and customs. Right, He married his brother's wife, Herodias. She had previously been married to his brother Philip. And Herodias and Philip were now divorced, but even still, according to Jewish law, it was unlawful to marry your brother's wife while your brother is still alive. Yet Herod and Herodias revel in the fact that they have the power and the ability to do as they wish. To flaunt their unbiblical and unlawful marriage in front of God and in front of those who actually care about God's law. Secondly, we see Herod's selfish power in his throwing a lavish party. And we're not to assume that this is a one time event. Right, this is a party for his birthday, not just a special birthday. This is not his 40th birthday. No, he's using this opportunity as a means to demonstrate his wealth and his influence to connect with the other big bigwigs in the area to do as he wishes. The guest list includes the nobles of the Galilean area, the military commanders, which could have even been the Roman military commanders, and this party would have been brazenly offensive to religiously sensitive Jews. This is a party without normal ent- entertainment. Right? This this isn't uh, a party with a string quartet and uh, you know and cocktails and hors d'oeuvres. No, the entertainment is Herod's teenage niece and stepdaughter, the daughter of Herodias and Philip, performing for the male guests in a circumstance that was seemingly set up by her mother the type of dancing would have been scandalous to law-abiding Jews it was intended to excite the male guests who were being treated to an assortment of worldly pleasures and abundances they were drinking wine freely and were more than likely quite intoxicated throughout this entire episode but thirdly we see Herod's selfishness in the way in which he silences his critics While Herod is not actively pursuing and trying to kill John the Baptist, he still demonstrates his selfishness in his passivity to the situation. The passage says that he likes John the Baptist. He even enjoyed hearing him preach, but not in any significant life-changing sort of way. But because he had drunkenly promised to grant the request of his stepdaughter, And because he's afraid of losing credibility of in front of those who have who have power and influence, he agrees to go along with it and to unjustly kill John the Baptist. Herod is using his position and his power to get and to keep what he wants. And as we look at his character here, it might be tempting to compare him with some of our own world leaders, but I think to do that lets us off of the hook. So I want to ask you more pointedly, how do you handle the responsibility or the influence that God has given to you? Are you using your influence to bless yourself, to store up blessings for yourself at the expense of others? In a time like this, it is also completely normal to feel that we are powerless. So any power that we may still have, we come want, to, want to hoard rather than steward. But let me remind you, you have some power over your finances, even if you can't control the tumbling stock market. You have some power over how you spend your day, even if you are trying to work with your children now at your feet. You have some power over the words and actions that you use towards others, even if your anxiety and stress are at an all time high. Isn't it tempting at all times, much less right now, to hoard your finances, to hoard your time, to hoard your emotional energy? The uncertainty and the fear that we all feel can lead to even more self focus, but we must be careful especially in times like this. How we steward our influence and power, it's intended to bless others, not to be hoarded by ourselves. Yesterday, I was walking with my daughter. We like to go on walks uh, during the rain together. And while we were walking, she wanted to know about the sermon this morning. And we were talking about King Herod and she goes, I think he is a lot like Scar from The Lion King. I was like, oh, tell me more about that. She said, well, he wanted everything for himself, and he ruled that way for himself, and as he did so, the kingdom fell apart. The beautiful creation turned into a wasteland. Everything that he touched selfishly disintegrated. That type of selfish power and selfish hoarding leads to destruction from the inside out. Theologian and author Andy Kraut says that power, when used at its worst, is the unmaker of humanity. And we see this everywhere right now. When people use their influence for personal gain at the expense of others, it leads to degradation of societies and to outpourings of fighting and hatred. It leads to inhumanity. How many of us have seen the videos of people fighting in the grocery stores over toilet paper? How many of us have seen the footage of spring breakers brazenly playing together and partying on the beaches, putting themselves and their loved ones and others at risk of further spread of the virus? Sin at its root is a misapplication of power and influence. In sin, we aren't satisfied to simply steward what God has given to us. No, we want to be like God. And when we use our influence and our power for self-blessing, we are actually hardening our own hearts and becoming less human than the way God intended. But that leads us to look at our second character, the true king who offers us our full humanity, by His grace. And although Jesus is not the main character or the main actor in the passage today, He is the reason for the story. Right? In fact, Mark tells us this side story about Herod and John the Baptist because as Jesus' fame grows during the time of His public ministry, we see that more and more people have a theory about who He is. Remember, Jesus' ministry leading up to this point had some pretty amazing things going on. Word of his miracles and his teachings have gotten around such that there are now all these rumors about who he is. He's John the Baptist. John the Baptist who has been resurrected. Or he's Elijah, the prophet who came to heaven via chariot and therefore never died. Or maybe he's just a general prophet of old. And Mark tells us which theory Herod Antipas believes and why. Why? Right Herod feels guilty for having John the Baptist killed and perhaps he fears that his guilt will now become public and known known to all so when Herod sees someone who he thinks is similar to John his conscience turns on him and it begins to attack him by telling the story this way mark is setting up a very clear juxtaposition between the man who identifies himself as king over Galilee and Perea and the true king of the whole cosmos. Mark invites us to compare and to contrast these two kings. Jesus is the king of the universe. He is the one who heals others with his robes. And he is the one who even the winds and the waves obey. With all of that power, what is he choosing to do? Is he throwing birthday parties with all of the important people? Is he lustfully indulging himself? Is he killing innocent people in order to save his reputation? No. It's only a false, worldly king who operates that selfishly. The true king of the world has not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus' kingship is not flashy, it's slow. It's relational. It's sacrificial. And if selfish power is the unmaker of humanity, then Jesus' kingship is the maker of humanity. And while at times it may feel like Jesus' kingship should have more fanfare and, and more substance to it, make no mistake, Mark shows us that something significant is happening here. What has begun as a mustard seed is growing into a small sapling to the point that even Herod Antipas has now heard of Jesus and some of the things that Jesus has been doing. So though it may be small, it is not insignificant. It's growing, and it's growing still. It can be easy to look at the happenings all around us and wonder where Jesus is. Wouldn't a worldwide pandemic be the perfect opportunity for him to show up in a big and bold way? Shouldn't the work of the church in this moment be a lot flashier than it feels or than it is? But we need not make the mistake of those who misjudged Jesus earlier in the passage. He's not Elijah or John the Baptist because those options are too small. Jesus is a king unlike anything the world has ever seen. His kingdom will be a kingdom where economic struggle and strife with work cease a kingdom where sickness and death are no more, a kingdom where our hearts of stone are removed, and we, by his grace, are given a heart of flesh. And the temptation is to think that just because his kingdom has not come in its fullness yet, that it must not be happening at all. We can fall into that type of despair. But if you are a Christian this morning, let me remind you that we are a people of hope not not Disney hope or Olaf hope that, that what is bad is somehow actually good or that things will somehow just work out if you have faith and that everything will eventually just make sense. No, genuine hope and faith in a guaranteed God and a guaranteed future. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing will come and it will establish true humanity and true flourishing for all who are united to Him by faith. The challenge for us is to trust and to hope in the meantime. And if that's not you this morning, I want to invite you to look more deeply at who Jesus is and and to continue coming back, either live stream or in person by God's grace, that we can continue to study the Gospel of Mark together. But if that is you, let's continue and look at our third character this morning, John the Baptist. If the passage is meant to juxtapose the true king of heaven and earth, Jesus, right, with with the worldly king, Herod, then what about John the Baptist? Why does Mark tell us that Herod thought John and and Jesus were the same person? What What is the connection between the two of them? Well, John's ministry begins by making a path straight for the Lord, right? He's the one calling out in the wilderness, telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's the one who's helping people to prepare for Jesus and what he's doing. And even in his death, John serves as a precursor to what is to come. John is faithful. John calls people to repentance, and yet he is imprisoned. A governor's weak leadership allows him to be delivered over to those who want him dead. He suffers unjustly. He is killed unjustly. Does that sound familiar? Mark uses John's story to point here to Jesus. And we are to do as John did. John didn't know everything and he certainly didn't know if things were going to work out for him. But as we find out, John died gruesomely, horrifically. But God uses the horror of John's death to foreshadow the victorious death of Jesus Christ. There are only two passion narratives in the Gospel of Mark. This one and the passion of Jesus Christ. It is very purposeful that Mark includes this here because through John's own death, he proclaims by way of foreshadow the good news that Jesus has won a victory over sin and death through his own death and resurrection. So what does it look like for us to follow in John's footsteps? What does it look like for us to be faithful even when we have no idea what God is doing My challenge to all Christians this morning is to faithfully proclaim through word and deed Christ's kingdom of generosity. In the midst of a culture that is selfishly hoarding, I challenge you to lavish others generously. That may be as simple as continuing to pay the people that you employ, either, either in your homestead or in your form of work. It may be as simple as ordering food or, or gift cards at our local restaurant, but it's likely bigger than that. Right? Perhaps God is calling you to reach out relationally to others who might be struggling deeply with loneliness right now. That may mean writing a letter or connecting with them on the phone or virtually as we're even doing now. It, it may mean a creative idea like organizing some sort of safe, social distancing block party for your street. But maybe our call to be like John is in proclaiming the goodness of God's kingdom and in trying to demonstrate the life-giving ways of his kingdom in being present. To be present to those in your family who are probably struggling right now. To be present to friends or co-workers who are isolated or sick. To be present to those who have lost their jobs or who fear losing them. That doesn't necessarily mean being physically present, but to be with them. We don't know what God is doing right now, and no matter what Olaf tells us, we will probably never fully understand. But God reminds us that He takes He takes the bad things of this world and He uses them for His good. He takes the curses of this world and He uses them to bless. He takes beheadings and the cross and He uses it to give life and life abundantly. We live in a world where we have very few answers to why things are happening the way that they are. Right? We live in a world where because of sin and because of self-interest, it's a struggle to trust, to trust others, or to maybe even trust God himself. But because we have a God who is trustworthy, and because we have a Savior who not only has loved us to the point of death and gives us life in him, but also because He promises that He is with us present in all things by His Spirit, then we can and should view our lives as an opportunity to proclaim His generosity to others. We can demonstrate His lavish love to a world that is in desperate need of it. May we do so. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank You. Lord, we thank You for Jesus' kingdom come. Father, we thank You for the ways in which You are taking what is inhuman in us, our sin, our destruction, and that You are making it human by Your grace. Father, turn our eyes to Jesus. May we follow Him in faith. And Lord, may we proclaim by word and deed the generosity of Your kingdom. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit. Amen.